Welcome to an audio teaching from Windsor Park Baptist Church in Auckland, New Zealand. If you would like to look at the message notes or see some questions for reflection that take their lead from today's teaching, head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz and head to the online tab where you'll see services and series and you can download different resources from there. Thanks for joining us and we hope you're encouraged by today's teaching. Hey, over the last few years, there have been a bunch of words or phrases maybe that have had a hugely significant effect in societies around the, particularly around the Western world. When we look at them, it's a fascinating insight into the way that the world functions at the moment, and in fact, some of the challenges that we face as a world. For example, since July 2013 and the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the shooting death of African-American teen Travion Martin in February 2012, the hashtag Black Lives Matter phrase has had a profound effect on social attitudes towards racism in a way that no other word has in recent times. Or how about the words cancel culture that are redefining what is deemed acceptable to say in the public domain and effectively cancels anyone that steps out of line with what popular opinion might be saying about any particular topic, of which there are many. Another example is the phrase, hashtag me too, that has sparked a deeply powerful movement that encourages women and men to call out all forms of abuse, especially against powerful individuals. You all know those three words, those phrases. And while they they take on significant meanings that drive social values and change in our time, on the other side of the coin, there are words that have arguably deeper and more significant meanings that just become over-familiar in their use. And we devalue their effects by using them to casually. Today, I want to talk about a word that we've used in Christian language for a long time that I think we've devalued by using it too casually. And this has been detrimental to how we live our lives, particularly at a time when we're experiencing an inability to debate big topics in healthy ways. And I'm talking about Christians' inability to do this. The word I want to talk about is the word grace. We talk about the grace of God. We sing about grace in multiple songs. And we say grace before we eat. And a few of us know people called grace. It's easy to assume that we understand grace because we use the word so regularly in our conversations. But my observation, particularly this year, is that I'm not so sure we understand what grace really is because we seem to have a lot of trouble showing and giving grace. What I want to suggest today is that we can only show grace if we have truly understood and experienced grace. Because I'm speaking largely to the choir today, I mean, most of you that are listening are Christians you'll know that there's a lot written about what grace is, whether that be in books like What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey, or whether that is in significant parts of Scripture that's committed to explaining grace. When we turn to the Bible, the word grace 
is used and defined 124 times, 10 times in the Old Testament and 114 times in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to write a lot of letters to a lot of new Christians in a lot of early churches to explain the concept of grace and what it means to be living as recipients and then givers of grace in their and now our lives. A good example of Paul's explanations of grace is found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 7 to 8, which says, In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Such powerful language. Redemption, forgiveness, the riches of God's grace lavished on us. So good. And that explanation is helpful, right? But here's what I've learned about the word grace. If you want to understand grace, you need more than a definition. You need more than an explanation. You need more than head knowledge and great theology. What you need is an an experience of grace. Because until you've experienced grace, you don't really understand grace. And a true experience of grace leads to a lived desire to show grace. I guess it's a little like romantic love. You can read about romantic love, you can watch it in the movies, you can have people explain it to you, but until you've experienced it, you can't really understand it and you can't really give it back. Most of you will know what I mean, particularly those of you who are newly married. So what does grace look like? And asking that question, I'm not really looking for an explanation from Scripture, although that is foundational and it is necessary. What I'm really looking for is a story that demonstrates an experience of grace. So it's just as well that preceding Paul's extensive coverage of grace, we see grace played out through actual events in the life of Jesus. Significantly, Jesus never used the word grace. He went down the, I'll just show you grace, route. And this is reflected by what John wrote at the beginning of his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Because this is the person of Jesus that John is writing about. He says that grace and truth just spilled out from Jesus in the way that he lived. Here are some examples. One of the first actions of Jesus' public ministry was the calling of his first disciples, those who would become his closest friends. Now, we've talked about this a bit in recent years, and we covered some of Jesus' process around this at the beginning of our last series back in March. But to recap, perhaps, Jesus is referred to as rabbi 15 times in the Gospels, mainly by his disciples. Rabbi translates to teacher. We know that because John writes exactly that in verse 37 of chapter 1. Jesus lived around the time when rabbis started to have significant influence in their society. Rabbis were highly educated religious leaders, and it was desirable for the young cream of the educated crop to become rabbis. 
But to become an apprentice to a rabbi, you had to apply. It was like getting an internship at a top legal firm in our city. Only the best would make it through. But significantly, when Jesus called people to become his apprentices, he didn't seek applications from the cream of the crop. He simply issued invitations to those who came across. Matthew records his invitation from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 9 to 12. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, tax collectors were not the cream of the crop. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his other disciples, why does your teacher, your rabbi, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, basically, they were saying, why doesn't he eat with the cream of the crop? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in this story, we learn something about grace. It's not what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. You, you don't have to have it all together and be the cream of the crop. Everyone gets an invitation, even tax collectors, people that work for the Inland Revenue, and sinners, the rest of us. Everyone. Even those of you who don't think you're good enough to get an invitation, this story shows that you are and that you can experience the grace that Jesus offers all people. If this was the only story about grace, it would be powerful in itself. Grace can still rewrite your story. There's something in the calling of Matthew that shows grace at work that an explanation about grace can't. But it's not the only story of Jesus showing grace and someone experiencing it. There's a story that we find in all three synoptic Gospels, which makes it significant that it's repeated in all three. Matthew writes it in chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. Mark writes it in chapter 1, verse 40 to 45. And, and in the Gospel of Luke, we read this in chapter 5, verse 12 to 16. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, we don't really appreciate the degree to which those who had leprosy back at that time were ostracized from their society. There was no cure for leprosy. And as it was highly contagious, people with leprosy were, were pushed to the very margins of everything. No one went near them and no one touched them except Jesus. All three accounts of this story are very clear. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. Now, Jesus didn't have to touch him. Nobody else would. So it wouldn't seem strange if Jesus had just stayed at a safe distance and just perhaps outstretched his hand over the man. And yet Jesus, full of grace and truth, touched those whose society rejected. He touched those on the margins. He touched those who felt abandoned and alone. 
because grace goes above and beyond what society says is normal to touch broken lives. This is the grace that Jesus still shows to us. We don't have to have our lives sorted out. We don't have to be clean. We just have to be willing to accept the undeserved favor that grace is. Jesus was willing to show grace to all people, even those described as being unclean. As the hands and feet of Jesus in the world today, are we? Now, if this was the only other story about grace, it would be powerful in itself. Grace can still rewrite your story. There's something in the story of Jesus touching the leper that shows grace at work that an explanation can't adequately describe. But it's not the only other story of Jesus showing grace and someone experiencing it. In a story of profound significance where grace is given and experienced, we read this in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, can you imagine this scene? Or mainly, can you imagine being one of the people about to cast a stone of judgment towards a woman who had stepped outside the moral boundary of what religious people thought was acceptable? And then Jesus steps up and it's apparent that he knows something about you that you don't want really exposed. So you quietly retreat and leave Jesus to it. And grace is then shown and experienced. Neither do I condemn you, says Jesus, as he encourages the woman to to come and follow him. Are you starting to get the idea? Jesus interacts with people who culture condemns and he offers the opportunity for all people to experience the kind of grace that the world does not offer. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. Jesus offers an experience of grace that is life changing and transformational. Now, if this was the only other other story about grace, it would be powerful in itself. Grace can still rewrite your story. There's something in the story of Jesus showing grace to that woman that shows grace at work that an explanation can't quite adequately cover. But it's not the only other other story of Jesus showing grace and someone experiencing it. 
If we jump down the passage of time a little to the end of Jesus' public ministry, we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 33 and 34. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I mean, again, you have to picture the scene. Imagine that you're an, an executioner. It might take a little bit more of your imagination. And you've just crucified someone who you inherently know is innocent. And that same innocent person calls out to God, his father, on your behalf and asks God to not hold you to account for your actions. You see, the offer of grace from Jesus is without boundaries. So what's your experience of grace received from Jesus? The kind of grace we see Jesus demonstrating in his self-sacrificing love for the world is the kind of grace that we can and must experience to truly understand how much it changes everything. It's the kind of grace that means we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are accepted, that we are renewed, that we are given new life and given eternal hope in a way that nothing else can, despite the fact that we are far from having our lives together, which is the point of grace. Through his life, death and resurrection, Jesus does all the heavy lifting of grace for us. Because grace enables transformation. Maybe the bigger question is, given that I'm speaking to people who use the word grace regularly, maybe the question is this, how are you going being the givers of the grace that you have received and hopefully have experienced deeply within your heart? I think this is a big question that those of us who call ourselves Christians need to think about at this time in history. Because in my opinion, those of us who have been given the opportunity to, to receive grace are demonstrating that we aren't great at turning that into the giving of the kind of grace that we are the recipients of. Maybe we don't know how to experience the kind of grace that Jesus offers us in the first place. Maybe that's part of our journey. Tragically, for the sake of the kingdom of God, we're, we're largely known for being judgmental, idealistic about how we think people should live. We're seen as holding some kind of superior moral code that we think people should live by. We're known for the antithesis of what Jesus demonstrates to us and of what Paul explains so vividly to us so many times. If we're serious about doing life and faith together at this moment in our lives, we need to take some time to think about what the grace that Jesus has given to us in our lives looks like. And then an even harder look at how we then give out what we claim to have received. We need to work hard at how we show the grace that we have received to people who are different from us. Because those people are created in the image of Christ exactly the same as us. 
whether they be a different color, whether they have different views around sexuality, whether they have a different understanding about the role of government and how that interacts with our lives, or whatever it might be that's a hot topic for you. The example of Jesus time and time again is just too profound to ignore and should cause deep reflection in our experience and our understanding and our practice of grace. It's just too significant a word for us to be casual about. And most of you will know the story of John Newton. To cut a really good but long story short, Newton ended up as a captain of ships that carried goods to West Africa and then traded those goods for slaves who were then shipped to the colonies in the Caribbean and North America. In 1748, during a return voyage to England aboard the ship Greyhound, Newton had a spiritual experience of sorts that marked the beginning of a journey towards being a follower of Jesus. He began to read the Bible and other literature, not Philip Yancey's books, but maybe some others. By the time he reached England, he had accepted the, the basic doctrines of evangelical Christianity. And the date was the 10th of March, 1748, an anniversary that he marked for the rest of his life. What is interesting is that he continued to work in the slave trade. He later said that his true conversion did not happen until some time later. He's quoted as saying, I did not consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable time afterwards. This process of ongoing conversion and the experience of receiving the grace that Jesus offered to a, to a slave trader ultimately resulted in Newton becoming an ally of William Wilberforce, who was the leader of a parliamentary campaign to abolish the African slave trade, which was achieved in England with the passing of the Slave Trade Act 1807. Of course, what most of you will know was that John Newton was also the author of a song that he called Faith, Review and Expectation that he wrote for a New Year's Day sermon that he gave in 1773. Since then, this song has evolved into 972 arrangements. In addition to actual events from his life at sea, the lyrics are also based on a passage from 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 16 to 17, that says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O oh God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men, O oh Lord God. Newton's song is an inspiring testimony of Christ's work in one man's life, rising from slavery to helping to abolish it. It's an inspiring story of experienced grace that turned into, into an extraordinary life of grace being given. And the song Amazing Grace is now perhaps the most sung hymn in the world today. You may not become an abolitionist, although you may. You may not become a powerful parliamentarian that rises up for social change, although you may. You may not become an influential minister who pens a song that becomes a worldwide hit, Although you may, you may not become known for a whole lot, although you may. But I pray that we all, 
who call ourselves followers, apprentices or disciples to Jesus may become known for giving out the grace of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the grace that we have hopefully deeply experienced in our own lives. God knows the world needs that kind of grace that Jesus demonstrated. And we have been given the responsibility to be the givers of that grace. Let's not underestimate the word grace when we casually mention it in our ordinary lives. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. It is so powerful. And yet we are sometimes guilty of taking it too casually. And when we think about grace, it's so well described for us and so well demonstrated for us. Father, I pray that we might reacquaint ourselves with the grace that we ourselves are offered and many of us have received. Might we know that it accounts for our sinful ways, it accounts for our imperfections, it allows us to have intimacy with you. Help us discover that first love, that first receipt of grace that we experienced in our lives. And Father, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit at work within us to be the givers of grace in a world that is divided, in a world where we struggle to have healthy conversations, in a, in a world where debate rages over significant issues. Father, help us, your sons and your daughters, to be those people who show grace, particularly to those on the margins, those who are different from us. Help us to live in your ways, and in that place to give you glory and honour. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining our audio teaching today. If there are ways that we can continue to support you or help you in your journey, please reach out to us. Head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz, and you'll find various ways to contact us. God bless. God bless.